chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We'll actually finish this chapter today. Luke chapter 2. We see Jesus here as, as a child, as a young man. Let's hear God's word together. We'll begin in verse 39 and we'll read all the way through verse 52. It says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover, and when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God. It stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come now to this portion of your holy word, we pray that you might be pleased to meet with us, that you might be pleased by the power of your spirit to speak to our hearts as we consider that the person of Jesus, this, this young boy here in this story, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our Savior and that as we see him, that we would bow before him, worship him as our king. Lord, I can't teach this in a way that would cause us to do that. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would, because you can. So, Lord, speak to our hearts today. We ask these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. Growing the growing Christ. Well, one of my children's favorite bedtime routines uh, is hearing stories from when Renee and I were young, when we were kids. Uh, they're fascinated by what it must have been like when we were their age. And so we have the opportunity to share these stories. And you've heard me, me say before that Renee is re a really good storyteller. And so she has all of these great stories. She can remember with like scary detail most every event of her childhood. And so she tells all these stories. I, on the other hand, can't remember what I did yesterday. And so, you know, I don't know if it was because I'm an only child. I don't know if it's because I have a bad memory, if I'm just a bad storyteller. I don't know. But I struggle. I tell about the same four or five stories every time I tell them, which is kind of what I do when I'm preaching, too. So sorry about that. Um, but so I, all the time I'm looking for, for some new story to tell. And I remember one time when Sam was little, I was, uh, he was wanting a story, and of course I couldn't think of one of my own, so I decided to tell him one about my dad, Papa. There's never a lack of good stories about my dad, and so I started telling this story, and I remember he looked up at me, he just had this look on his face, like, it was like a, what are you talking about? 
I said, Sam, what is it? He said, you mean that Papa was little? You mean he was a kid? I was like, well, yeah, son, he was a kid. He's like, he just, it blew his mind. He absolutely could not believe that at any point his grandfather had been a child. Now, I think on some level, we can all relate to that, right? You know, these people that, that we think about that were our heroes, that, that seemed larger than life to us, we can remember them maybe as they are, or maybe as they were at some point, but it's hard for us to think about them just in normal human development, right? And growing up as children, and growing up in normal circumstances, it's hard for us to picture those folks that were our heroes that way. Well, nowhere is that more true than in our passage before us here. Here we find the only recorded account of Jesus in his childhood. Now, obviously, we have different stories surrounding his infancy, uh, stories we haven't discussed in Luke's gospel. In Matthew, we, we read about the Magi that come. In Matthew, we read about them fleeing to Egypt, right? We don't get that here, but this is the only recorded account of Jesus after his infancy, until he gets to his, his public ministry, until the age of 30. And so as we approach this story, I think there's a sense of kind of wonder, a sense of awe at it, right? We, we are, our minds are kind of blown like Sam to think that Jesus was a child. But it's really even more than that. Really, as we consider this, I think we have a struggle of who Jesus was, a struggle of his person. You know, as one pastor put it, we can picture Jesus as an infant, we can picture him as an adult, but if you have ever been around a 12-year-old boy, it's hard to picture Jesus at that age, right? 12-year-old boys, they, they want to do what they want to do. They want to go hang out with their friends. They want to go run and jump and get scrapes and bruises. It's hard to picture Jesus quite like that. And yet that's exactly what we have here before us. Here, as they, Jesus gets prepared to go up for his bar mitzvah, right? He, he's about to come of age. And in order to do that, he's got to go with his father to the Passover to learn kind of what things are all about. He is growing, right? He's growing as the Christ. Now, it's tempting for us to take this story and kind of just moralize it, kind of say, you know, this is how we should raise our children as parents, or maybe this is how our kids should act, or maybe we should say this is how we should all grow as Christ. And I think there's probably truth in all of that, but we have to remember what Luke's purpose here in this gospel is, right? Saw this back at the very beginning. So he writes to Theophilus, he says that my purpose here is to show you, to tell you the exact truth, the exact facts about Jesus, all the way through, we need to be asking the question, all right, what does this teach us about our Lord? Well, that's the question that we want to ask today. And, and as we ask that question, I think what we find is probably going to challenge us somewhat. It's going to challenge our thinking about Jesus. You know, so many in the church, we as well, have a tendency to think of his earthly life in a way that doesn't always fit the biblical picture. But what I hope happens today is as we wrestle with this, as we try to bring our own ideas, our own thoughts in line with what Scripture says, with what God has revealed, I hope that it will cause us to look to God, to look to Jesus more in love than we ever have. It will cause us to fall down before him in worship, in wonder, and awe. Because, friends, what we find here is nothing short of, 
of miraculous, nothing short of that wondrous love that we're going to sing about at the end of this when all of this is over. This is, is something that should cause us to praise. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning. Uh, what I'm going to do is we're going to look at several different things. And I just want to list them out for you, and then we're going to come back at the end and try to make some, some points of application. So first thing I want you to see here, I want you to notice that the humanity of Christ that is on display for us. Now you see this really throughout this passage, but it's summed up well for us in those two verses that kind of bookend our passage. So uh, in verses 40 and then in verse uh, 52. So 40 says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then in verse 52 it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, the first thing I want to point out is that Jesus had a human body. Jesus had a human body. As we think about his humanity, that's the first thing we need to see. And that seems obvious to us, right? We don't have any problem picturing Jesus as a man. Usually our problem is picturing him as divine. But one of the first, very first heresies that the church ever had to face was called doceticism. And it was the belief that Jesus did not have a real human body that it was a phantom body, that it was just somehow not a real flesh and blood. But what we find in this passage is that Jesus grew, that he grew up like any child would. He didn't magically snap his fingers and go from an infant to an adult, like Helen, if she just snapped her fingers and went from this sweet little Helen to an adult right before. That's not what Jesus did, right? No. He went through the normal process of human development. He had to sit up. He had to crawl. He had to walk. He experienced the, those awkward teenage years here in our passage that, that we all go through. Not only that, but, but we know from later accounts that his was not like a superhero body, right? I think we have this like Marvel imprint in our minds. And so when we think about Jesus, we think about him in those terms, do you remember in John chapter 4, when he comes to the woman at the well, why does he stop there to begin with? It's because he had been on a long journey, and he was tired. His body was tired. Later, in Matthew chapter 4, right, when he is tempted by Satan, he's in the desert for 40 days fasting, and Satan comes to him and says, turn this stone into bread, right? He was hungry. That was a real temptation. That wasn't just, he wasn't just making that up. That was real. We can say with confidence that, that he got those scrapes and bruises like any boy would. When he hit his thumb while he was learning to be a carpenter in his father's workshop, it hurt. And we know from, from later accounts there at the end of his life, that when the Roman soldiers walk past him as he's hanging on the cross, as they drive the spear into his side in John chapter 19, what happens? He bleeds. Water and blood come forth. My point, and we're going to apply it later, but my point is that Jesus was fully, man, he had a real human body. He knows what it's like to be hungry and thirsty. He had a real physical existence, and you see that here in this passage. Next, I want you to also notice that Jesus had a real human mind. Now, I think this is the one that probably trips us up more than any of them. And we wonder, how did Jesus know the things that he knew? Or at what point did he know everything about his life? And those are, those are fun questions to consider. But I think often our assumption is that since he was God, Jesus knew everything all the time. 
Now, in his divine nature, that's true. He did know everything all the time as God. But as a human, what did he know? Well, look at 2.52 again. Chapter 2 and verse 52. He says there that he grew in what? He grew in wisdom. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, it says that he learned obedience. Even more telling for us is what Mark shares with us in his gospel. Mark chapter 5 and in verse 30, you remember this is the story where the lady that has the hemorrhage, she's, she comes up to try to find Jesus and she just wants to reach out and touch his garments. And when she touches it, what does he do? He turns around and he doesn't say, hey, you lady right there. He says, who touched me? Who, he felt the power leave him, but he doesn't turn around and know exactly who it was. He says, who touched me, right? Well, you may say, well, that's just, that was for everybody else's sake. We'll turn over to, to Mark chapter 13, and in verse 32, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, his, his return, Jesus is talking about his second coming. He says, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Again, my point is like his body, Christ's mind, it had to develop. His human mind was not omniscient. He didn't know all things at all times from a human perspective. Instead, he had to learn. And that's what we see him doing here in the temple. As he sits with those great teachers, he is learning. Now, a lot of people have assumed that he was the one doing the teaching, but that's not the case. The, the, the pattern of learning in that day was you would go and you would sit with a teacher and you would ask questions. You would kind of debate with them. That's how you would gain knowledge. And so that's what we see him doing here. He, he is trying to, to learn. Now, they're certainly surprised by how much he gets. They're surprised at how he retains things. He doesn't know everything. Now, I know the, the response is going to be, someone will ask, if Christ had a human body, if he had a human mind, how did he do the things he did, right? How did he heal people? How did he turn water into wine? How did he know things about Nathaniel before he had ever met him? How did he know that the, the coin would be in the fish's mouth in Matthew chapter 19? How did he know that the woman at the well had all of those husbands, right? He knew everything about her. How did he know those things? The answer is that he knew those things the same way that Moses and Elijah and Elisha knew the things that they knew. They knew it because the Father, through God's Spirit, had revealed the things that they needed to know, right? The, Jesus, and this is important, Jesus lived in complete dependence on the Holy Spirit. It's what God calls us all to do, and that's what he did. He lived in dependence on the Spirit. So we see here that Jesus had a human body, human mind. He had, thirdly, a human will. Human will. Jesus had to make choices like, like any human would. Despite his own desires, his own longings, he had to choose at every moment to do what Adam and Eve failed to do. You know, Adam or Eve believed the serpent. She ate the, the fruit. And then Adam followed Eve and ate the fruit. Jesus comes and he chooses to perfectly follow the Father. Now, don't for a minute think that that was an easy thing for him to do. Don't for a minute think that that was a walk in the park. Think about what we read here in this passage. It says that as they go back to Nazareth, that he is submissive to his parents. Again, think about 12-year-old boys. How many 12-year-old boys do you know that are submissive to their parents? 
that even want to be submissive to their parents. I have an 11-year-old that I can, I can testify to. How many adults want to be submissive to anybody, to anyone? Right? Wives are called to be submissive to their husbands. Husbands are called to be submissive to Christ. Do we do that well? I don't think none of us do that well. And yet here, this 12-year-old Jesus, he is perfectly submissive to his parents. Though they are sinners, he is submissive to them. But the greater example of this is, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? As Jesus prepares to go to the cross, as he prepares to endure the wrath of his Father, he kneels there in prayer and he prays, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. That's his desire, right? His human will. That's what he wants to do. What does he say? What does he settle on? He says, but Lord, not my will, but your will be done, right? He looks to the will of the Father and he submits himself to it at every moment, at every turn. Last, Jesus had human emotions. He had human emotions. You don't see that as much here, but, but we can't leave it off and you see it clearly throughout Luke's gospel. As he goes through life, we kind of see him as this stoic teacher, and he, and he was that to some degree. But in Mark chapter 11 and verse 15, he comes into the temple, right, and he clears the place out, right? He's got the whip. He's angry. He's angry at what he sees happening in his father's house. In John chapter 11, Jesus is sad. He weeps for his friend Lazarus. As he looks over Jerusalem at the, at the triumphal entry, he says, oh, if you would have come to me as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, I would have gathered you up. He experienced joy. He rejoices in Luke chapter 10. He, we've already talked about the stress, the anguish he felt in the garden. In John chapter 11, he loved Lazarus. Remember, they said as he wept, how he must have loved him. Jesus loved his people. Matthew chapter 27, as he hangs on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to feel alone. Again, as a 12-year-old, we can be sure that he knows exactly what that's like. He experienced the full range, the full depth of human existence at no point was he shielded away from what it means to be truly and really human. Now look, we're going to come back and we're going to apply that, but just keep that in mind. Keep that fact that Jesus was truly a man as we move forward. Secondly, I want you to notice here that not only was he a man, but he was also divine. He had a divine nature. And we just get a glimpse of that as we look through this passage. But you see it there in verses 48 and 49. Now it's... It's easy for us, I imagine, to, to think about what Mary and Joseph must have felt in that moment. If you've ever had a child that was lost, if you've ever been lost yourself, then you, then you kind of have an inkling of what they must have felt. It was probably a mixture of anxiety, uh, of fear, and probably a little bit of anger, too. And so when Mary speaks, you can kind of hear the rebuke in her voice, right? In verse 49, uh, in verse 48. She says, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Why have you done this to us? And notice what Jesus' response is. 
And it's, it's significant that these are the first words of Jesus that are recorded for us in Scripture. They set the stage for all that is to come, right? He says, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my Father's house? Did you catch the contrast there? Mary says, your Father and I have been looking for you. And He says, don't you know that I would be in my Father's house? Already, he has some understanding of his relationship to the Father, that he is that eternal Son of God. Yes, he came in human flesh really and truly, but he never, ever stopped being the second person of the Trinity. He never stopped doing what Paul tells us that he did, which was uphold the world, the universe, with the power of his hand. He upheld it all. He has always done that, and he will always do that. Now, this union of the divine and the human, it's more, it's a mystery we can't even begin to, to describe, right? That our minds can't even wrap around. But it's important for us to at least consider it for the second thing that I want you to see about his divinity. Because not only did he have a divine nature, but he also had a divine calling. And you see that again in his response in 49. If you have a King James version of the Bible, that, that's translated there, not I'm in my father's house, but I'm about my father's business, right? And it seems like that, that translation, either one of them could be right. In context, he is in the father's house, what did he come to do? He'd come to do the Father's will. And we see what that will is in John chapter 6. You remember, this is where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He's come down from heaven. Your fathers, they, they ate manna in the wilderness and they died. But the bread I give will cause them to live forever, right? And in the midst of all of that, in verse 38 of chapter 6, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Day. This is what Jesus came to do. And even now, as a 12-year-old in the temple, he is about that business. As the Son of God and as the Son of Man, Jesus, throughout his life, would work out that salvation. It was a business that, that would lead him to the cross. It was a business that would lead to an empty tomb. Lead him to the right hand of God the Father Almighty as that God-man in human flesh, seated at God's right hand. And it is a business that will ultimately get us who believe safely home. This was the work that God gave him to do. It was a divine call. And he is about that business. And so Jesus has a human nature. He has a divine nature. Now let me conclude just by, by giving you some points of application here. I know this is all kind of technical stuff. This is theologically deep. It's more than our minds can really wrap around. And we think, all right, so what's the point of all this? How, how does this help us? How does this help me go out into the world and to live, okay? Well, let's try to make some applications like that. First, friends, isn't it one of the dearest, sweetest truths of all of Christianity that our Savior 
became a man. That he really and truly was like us in every way. You know, we've just come through an election season where politicians try to say to us all the time, I know what it's like to be you. I know what it's like to live where you have lived. And the reality is that some of them may, but most of them don't know what it's like to be most of us, right? They don't know what it's like to live. They just live in different circumstances, and it's not their fault, but that's just the reality of it. But here, here we find the second person of the Trinity, the God of the universe. He does know what it's like to be you. Because he has walked where you have walked. He has been in your shoes. He has felt the things that you have felt in his human mind, with his human flesh, with his will, with his emotions. The Lord knows you not simply because he created you, but because he has been where you have been. Friends, think of the freedom that gives us before our Savior. As we come before him, there is nothing that we can spill, that we can say, that's going to shock him, that's going to surprise him, that's going to cause him to turn us away, that's going to say, no, I don't, I don't get that. I don't understand that. No, he understands in every way except without sin. He knows what it's like to be us. If you're here today and you're holding something back from the Savior, don't do it. He knows it anyway. But friends, let this be an invitation to come before him. If you're overwhelmed with sadness, he understands what that's like. He wept. If you feel abandoned, left alone, he understands what that's like. He was forsaken on the cross. If you're angry today, he knows what that's like. He's been there. Friends, you can run to him with it all. and He knows and he cares and he loves you and he can give you help. In your time of need. That's what you read there on top of our page, right? Hebrews chapter 2. I don't know where my page is, but Hebrews chapter 2. You remember that the um, author says there, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those in their time of need. We have a Savior who can help us, who can understand us. He has been where we have. And so that's a sweet, sweet assurance for us. It's a sweet truth. But secondly, as a point of application, I want to remind you, and we've seen this already in Luke's gospel, so we don't have to overwork this. I want to remind you that, that as we consider this truth about Jesus, who he is, That these are things of necessity. In order for him to save us, this is the truth of how God had to do it. He had to become man to represent us. And at any point, he was more or less than that. He failed to be our representative, right? He had to be truly man. But at the same time, in order to save us, he had to be truly God. And so our Christ, he comes And he submits himself, though he has all the rights, though though he is the one who stands on high. He submits himself to his parents. He submits himself to authority. He submits himself to the will of the Father. He submits himself even to the cross, even death on the cross, Paul says, so that he might bring many sons, many daughters to glory. 
Again, I know that, that this is hard to wrap our minds around. Friends, if we can get just even a small glimpse, an inkling of what we have here in our Savior, surely it will cause us to say, as we're going to sing, what wondrous love is this that calls the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Again, you think about the, the hymn, How Great That Art. It says, when I think that God, his son not sparing, he sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing, that Jesus, he died to take away my sin. Friends, that, that should truly make us bow. It should truly make us worship fact that he loved us so much that he would stoop so low to save someone like me to save someone like you that is a love beyond expressing a love so amazing a love so divine friends I want to end with a, a simple question have you truly considered the implications a 12-year-old Jesus, a Jesus that, that grew up, that grew in wisdom, that grew in stature and favor before the Lord and favor before the man, have you truly considered how much he loved you to do that? If not, I encourage you to do that today. See this Savior, this one who is man, this one who is divine, this one who is the Savior of sinners you have seen that, if you have believed, then my invitation to you is to come and bow before him. Come and worship him as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. That is the only proper response for us as we consider who he is, as we consider what he's done. Let's pray together. Father, these things are not easy for us. These things are often feel academic, they often feel like they, they may not have a, a large application to our lives, but Lord, as we consider the person of Jesus, there's nothing better for us to understand, nothing better for us to know than, than who he was. Lord, as we consider that sinless Savior, that one who became man, who lived the life as we lived except without sin, Lord, we rejoice at that truth, that that means he understands even me. He understands my hurt, my pain, I can bring it all before him. And he doesn't turn me away, but he loves me. He lo loves me with a, a love that never ends. And Father, as we consider that he is the, the second person of the Trinity, that he stoops so low to come and to save us, Lord, I pray that, that we would respond in the only way that's proper, with faith, with love, and with worship, with worship of our King. Lord, be with us. Help us to do that more fully. Fill us with the power of your Spirit. Keep those effects of sin that we feel away from us so that we might understand these things, that we might see our Savior clearly. It's in his name we pray. Amen.